this episode, we speak with Henry Jesut about his experiences as an entrepreneur and the fascinating journey he went on as co-founder of the automatic energy switching service, Look After My Bills. Henry, hi. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. And thanks very much for taking the time out to speak to us. I guess just for the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great to start with some background from your side on your career and where you're at currently. Yes, so um, my career has jumped around a bit. So I started off by doing kind of policy and research and worked for a think tank in London. And I did a very short stint at a think tank in Washington, D.C. And that was kind of focused on policy, mainly domestic policy, and how do you kind of improve public services and and there was a kind of big aspect of that was around communications, like trying to get kind of like policy proposals in the media so that politicians would pay attention to them and getting people on side with those kind of things. And I actually ended up going to work for a communications agency after I left the think tank world. And then I actually ended up as a special advisor in government, in the Cameron government in 2010. And I was a special advisor in the Department for Education for Michael Gove. So that's a kind of like, it's not quite a civil servant, it's kind of a political appointee. And I was in the Department for Education from 2010 to the back end of 2013, start of 2014, working on kind of government policy and trying to drive through education reform, which was great. And then I left government and set up a business that was originally called The Big Deal. And that was at the start of 2014. I did that with my co-founder, Will, who's an old friend of mine from university. And the idea for that business, The Big Deal, was can we use the collective bargaining power of thousands of people to kind of get them deals that they couldn't get on their own? It was like a kind of collective, the hints in the name, the big deal. And we started off on energy and we went out and kind of negotiated deals with energy companies that you couldn't get on your own and took them to our membership and grew our membership. And we did the largest mass switch to green energy in kind of 2015, I think it was, which was great. But I think in classic startup world, we ended up pivoting, <laughs> I think is the technical term, and actually decided that what we really wanted to build was a service that kind of carries on doing the switching for you every year rather than providing you with one-off deals. We built that in 2017. It was called Look After My Bills. The business morphed into Look After My Bills. We launched that at the start of 2018, spent some time out in California to raise some investment. Then ludicrously, we were on Dragon's Den in 2018. And then that business has kind of gone gangbusters. And we recently hit over half a million customers on it. We saved our members over 140 million pounds on their energy bills. And the idea is very simple. You kind of sign up once we'll go get you a deal and then when that deal ends we'll automatically switch you again and we'll carry on doing that forever and because at the moment unfortunately the system is that if you go get a good energy deal you go on a price comparison site you get a good energy deal if you don't remember to switch it switch again in a year's time you get your prices hiked and we felt that was very unfair and we wanted to change all of that look after my bills we actually sold the business to go compare last year and i'm still with them working on it sorry very rambling <laughs> Not at all. I mean, it's such a varied career in such a pretty short space of time, Henry. But what's interesting, I guess, is that it's yet another entrepreneur that's had a career in politics and government. And be interested to hear from you as to, you know, how is your experience as a special advisor in the Cameron government useful or not, perhaps, as a business entrepreneur and an owner? 
<laughs> well, they were very different experiences. I mean, I think like working in the civil service, which was, you know, the Department for Education was 3,000 people at the time, and then going off and setting up a business that was literally me and my closest friends. There was kind of four of us for the, in the space of four, <laughs> for, for about four years. I mean, recently, gosh, we've grown into over 100 people now in the space of two years. But for the, you know, like, so the kind of classic overnight success story is like it, it took us four or five years to even get above four people in the team. So, you know, it was very different experiences. I mean, I really enjoyed government. I felt incredibly lucky to be doing it. I worked with a brilliant minister, Michael Gove, and a brilliant team. And I think maybe the lessons are of like kind of we did a lot of changes and trying to get stuff done is not necessarily easy in large organizations. And it's not, I mean, I'm not being critical of the public services because I think any large organization, whether public or private, quite hard to get things done and get things through. You know, everything can be quite bureaucratic when it gets big. And I think, you know, it was refreshing to go into a startup and be in charge and be in control of my own destiny and being able to do things quickly and react quickly and move very, very fast. And that was a joy. It really was. And just moving on to the big deal, it feels like you and your partner had a real sort of clear social mission when you set that up. How important do you see that in terms of attracting investment, particularly in these days? We've spoken a lot this year in particular about firms having a social conscience, a purpose for being how important do you see it, particularly from an investor's perspective? Well, I think it's absolutely vital. And I mean, it's funny one, from an investor's point of view, you know, different investors have different takes on what's really important. But I think all the best ones do understand the importance of a mission, because I think they understand the deeper underlying point, which is that, you know, one of the hardest things that a startup has to do is to recruit the best staff that they possibly can. And why would someone join a startup that's got no money, it's only got a few people, you know, really high quality candidate is not necessarily going to join that kind of business when they can go off and work for Google or whoever it might be, earn a lot more money. And the reason you can attract people is, is that you've got a big, ambitious mission and goal. And with that felt important for us, I mean, just in terms of attracting talent, but also just in terms of like wanting to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I've been doing stuff in government that I felt was important, whatever anybody thinks of the government reforms, they came from a good place. We were trying to improve things for the poorest children. And then when I set up a business I was you know I was like well what can we do to try and actually right some wrongs and try and change things for the better and my take on the kind of the energy market in particular is is that it's quite hard to regulate it to make it better and actually what you need is businesses doing interesting innovative things and I think in the energy markets Bruce and particularly the switching market which is the truth about what we were in is is that price comparison websites have been the same now since they launched back in 1999 or 2000 whenever they launched so exactly the same they literally look the same as they did 20 years ago and there's been very very little innovation and therefore coming along and trying to change all of that for the better the truth is is that it's the poorest and the most vulnerable and the older people who tend to not switch their energy and therefore are the ones who are getting ripped off by the big energy companies and therefore we had to try and come up with something that could work for those and you know and it sounds cheesy but you know one of the things that in our all hands meetings on a regular basis I would try and make the point to everyone in the team that why are we doing this we're doing this because we're trying to change the system for the better because it doesn't work and too many people are overpaying in difficult times and we're trying to change that so I think the mission stuff is really important I think it's gives a purpose for what you're doing and has something to kind of rally everybody around. You mentioned energy, Henry, and we've spoken a lot before about insurance markets being disrupted, particularly with lots of go compare, etc. Is there any other industries that you have your eye on that you could see the same 
sort of trend following from a consumer's perspective? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The problem in energy is in gas and electricity is not unique to, to, to the energy market, you know, where if you're not on top of it or switching every year, then the people you're with take advantage. You know, it's the same, you know, look at something like a savings account where, you know, you get a cheap, I mean, obviously no one's getting good savings rate at the moment, but you get a rate for a year and then they hope that you fall asleep and forget about it and they drop you down to 0.0001 or whatever it might be. And it's the same with broadband. It's the same with mobile phones. It's, it's the same with all of this stuff where you kind of get a good deal to begin with. And then if you're not on top of it and you're not like keeping your own spreadsheet and setting up calendar reminders about all of this stuff and constantly going on comparison websites for all of these different things, you know, even mortgages is the same. You know, you sign up to a mortgage and then when the term runs out, they hike the prices and they'll let you know, but they hope that you forget and some of you do. And therefore, that's where they really make their money. And frankly, that I do think that system is wrong. And I do think that we'll look back in kind of 10 years time and go, it was kind of weird that that was how we went about doing it all and actually, you know, effectively outsourcing it to a kind of look after my bills organization that does all of this stuff for you and does it on a consistent basis is almost like the kind of rational consumer that you will never really be because you've got other things in your life to do and people don't have time to spend their lives, you know, researching what the best deals are and, you know, making sure that they don't get rolled onto a bad deal and then have calendar reminders set up for everything. Like that's just, you know, it's not human nature for people to do that. And and actually loyalty gets penalized. And I think we'll look back in 10 years time and think that was crazy way of doing things. And I think this is an important change in how I think consumers will act with lots and lots of different industries and companies is what we're trying to begin into. And I guess that takes us to the sort of genesis of look after my bills, Henry. And I think at the start of this conversation, you mentioned pivoted, which I guess you could also term as just ripping up the whole plan and starting all over again in terms of the big deal business. When you changed tack, as it were, and created look after my bills, how did you convince investors that you had on board at the time that this was the right thing to do? I'm sure many other entrepreneurs are at points in their careers and their businesses where you feel the need to evolve, but it's not just a question that you have to answer yourself and your business partner, but you've got investors to placate also. How did you go about that and what was their reaction? Yeah, that's why it's a great question. I think, <laughs> well, we had lots of very interesting conversations, <laughs> put it that way. And I think so the thing about the big deal was that it did work in the sense that we were profitable, you know, we made money, but it just never quite felt like it was going to like massively take off. And I think the truth was, was that investors knew that. We kind of gone through a cycle where, like with any business, the first year was very difficult. I didn't take a salary and all of that kind of jazz. And then by kind of year two, we had a bit of revenue. And then we kind of actually had a quite a good year three. But then things suddenly like kind of didn't go brilliantly well. I mean, we were still making profit in year four. It wasn't like it was kind of, you know, the hockey stick was not there, which is what people are looking for. And we, But we were also lucky in the sense that we just done a seed round. Well, almost, I mean, I think you'd call it a pre-seed. It was kind of a very small round at the start in 2014. And then we didn't actually need to raise any more money after that because we were profitable 
by kind of year two. So actually the conversations with the investors, it wasn't like we were talking, these are all angels. So it wasn't like we were talking to venture capitalists at this point. These are all kind of angels who, you know, many of them were serial investors and, you know, and understood how all of this kind of stuff worked. But we were able to kind of take them on a journey. And it was also at this point that we had applied for Y Combinator and we'd actually got in. And so when we were able to say, well, look, you know, the whole point is, is that we're going to move away from the big deal model and we're going to move to the look after my bills model. And from their point of view, it was like, and we've also got into Y Combinator and that's very prestigious. And it means that we've got a better chance of making this very much bigger. I think they kind of understood that. And also there was a kind of business case for moving away from the big deal to look after my bills as well, in the sense that the big deal was very one-off chunks of income you know we'd do a big switch you know we'd negotiate a deal and we'd get lots of people to switch and then it we'd have to go out again and negotiate another deal and it was kind of it was bitty you know it was like kind of three or four big campaigns in a year and they were one off and we were trying to get people to switch again afterwards but the truth was there wasn't really any recurring income in the big deal whereas the whole point to look after my bills is that we were able to do the right thing for the consumer but also get recurring income as a business because we were switching everybody every year so once we kind of took investors through that story and I think the key thing is, is that you just got to be very clear about why you're doing it and what the rationale is and what the benefits of doing all of that. We took them on that journey and they understood it and they were incredibly supportive. And then also with Y Combinator as well, that helped in terms of getting everybody over the line that this wasn't like a kind of totally crazy thing to do to blow up our old business model and build an entirely new product and move to something new. So it was lots of interesting conversations, but it worked out well. And I want to talk to you about Y Combinator, Henry. It's obviously a unique accelerator, you know, founding the likes of Dropbox, Airbnb, etc. But I guess it's investing for that, you know, sort of 1% of the fund that will be the unicorn, I suspect. But as a portfolio company within that, how did that make you guys feel? You know, did you feel a certain pressure on it? How is it from your point of view? Yeah, so I mean, look, I am a massive fan of Y Combinator and Paul Graham and Sam Altman and, you know, Will Red Pool's essays and all that kind of stuff over the years. And I mean, I think that Y Combinator has definitely been on a journey. You know, it started off very small, you know, 10 or 20 companies in a batch. And now, gosh, well, in our batch, there was over 100 companies. And I think it might even have got bigger. But I still feel like it was 100% the right thing for us. And what it did was... It was a kind of big mindset change in terms of like what's achievable or what's possible. You know, when you go to California and everybody is just thinking so big, it was incredibly helpful for networking. You know, we were able to make contacts with investors in California off the back of Y Combinator that we literally would never have met. You were kind of able to meet a bunch of people in the space of kind of three months that normally it would take you kind of a year or two to even get to know any of them. And you'd be flying back and forth to California the whole time. Obviously, things have changed now with COVID. But also you kind of like one of the most valuable things was meeting all the other founders in the groups, becoming friends with them. It's like a kind of, you know, real kind of cordial spree amongst everybody and everybody's kind of helping each other. And it's really genuinely true that the Y Combinator kind of alumni and people who have done it are incredibly supportive of everybody else who's doing it. And you literally were are able to email other Y Combinator founders, even very famous ones, and say, hey, I'm doing this, can you help? And you, know, you will more than likely get a response because that's just that kind of, that brilliant thing that they've kind of community that they've created. So my basic view on 
Y Combinator is that it is 100% worth it and everybody should go for it. Yes, of course, it's the case that you've got to be okay with the fact that you are 100% a venture capital-backed business. And the truth is, is that that means everybody's looking for the next Airbnb or the next Dropbox and they want it to be an IPO and all of that kind of jazz. So you will get pushed very, very hard to grow very fast. And the most important thing is growth. But that doesn't mean you can't approach it in different ways if you're doing it. But I think, you know, when you're at that kind of early stage and you're basically raising a kind of seed round, which is what most Y Combinator is doing, and obviously the valuations have got pretty high and more money is being raised, but fundamentally they're seed rounds, you need and should be thinking about it in terms of like, how do I make this the biggest thing in the world? Because that's what really drives you to give you the best chance of success, even if it's, you know, to make it a kind of smaller, but really fantastic company opening that kind of having that real ambition is, is so important. So I particularly pro Y Combinator, if you're a SaaS kind of enterprise or B2B business, because you can sell your product, your software to all the other Y Combinator startups, which is obviously a huge benefit, and they will, as a general rule, try out lots of different things. You know, and there's got there's thousands of companies now in that have gone through Y Combinator, so that's incredibly helpful as a way of it's almost like a kind of distribution tool if you're B two B, but also if you're doing other style products, I think it's just going spending three months out in California and meeting all those people is just an incredible experience, really. And you touched a little bit there on California, Silicon Valley, thinking big. And just looking at the exit from Look After My Bills, Henry, I mean, like one could argue that you could have stayed in for a lot longer and doubled down and maybe multiplied proceeds many, many times over. What was sort of going through your mind? What was the sort of thought process from your perspective in terms of actually staying in for a much longer time to make more money? Did you have different drivers? What was it that made you exit sooner rather than later? Yeah, I mean, gosh, so we sold for 12 and a half million pounds and it's, (laughs) I mean, like, gosh, that is absolute small fry. I mean, obviously, you know, Y Combinator still, you know, 10x their investment in us and our angel investors, gosh, some of them 15 and 20x. So, you know, sorry, more more, more like 15x of their original investment. So our investors did incredibly well, including Y Combinator, but it wasn't by, clearly wasn't even, you know, remotely near anything like really, really special. I think most people would probably accuse me of a kind of European mindset, which is, you know, you're selling too early and actually you should go on and you could do it and you could get bigger and bigger and you could, you know, excel for much more in in the future or, you know, do whatever it is. I think it was, you know, these choices are incredibly difficult and obviously mould over all sorts of different things in our heads. I think, you know, at that stage, we had done a basically a kind of pre-seed round back in 2014 and then we'd done a little bit. We'd raised the beauty of the business was the big deal was profitable and we built Look After My Bills off all the money that we had made in the big deal and then we only went and raised a very kind of smallish like seed rounds from investors after Y Combinator that we didn't even really need to raise but we did it because we wanted to kind of make those connections and all of that kind of jazz and so we still owed like a large chunk of the company and it was probably one of those points where it was like okay well we either try and do a series A and kind of go on the journey and you know when you do a series A you're basically committing to at least doing another five years or there's a chance 
chance that we could sell now and therefore maybe we do that now. I mean, the truth is, is that no one really sells a company. Companies get bought, you know, so it, it wasn't like it was kind of like, oh, well, we'll just try and sell now. Like, that's not how it works. It was kind of like actually someone came along and made an interesting offer. And then it was like, OK, we'll have a think about that. I mean, we did actually have quite a lot of people sniffing around us at that point. And I think most kind of like high growth startups will get this where people are just either going to look under the bonnet and having a sneaky peek under the guise of being for sale. And we had a few people doing that kind of stuff. And I won't name any names, but some people didn't cover themselves with glory on all of that. But it was an incredibly hard choice, very difficult. I mean, I think the thing to remember was that, you know, Look After My Bills only launched in 2018. And so when we sold it, everybody was like, hold on, you're selling it after a year. You've only been doing it a year. But the truth is, we'd launched it. You know, we'd been working on that business since 2014. So it was a kind of much longer journey than I think most people would have thought looking in from the outside. Yeah. And Henry, finally, I just I really want to ask you about your time on Dragon's Den, obviously famous for the most successful pitch in the history of the programme. How does it rank in terms of the most terrifying pitches that you've done? How difficult did you find it? Well, I mean, it was absolutely petrifying. <laughs> I mean, look, this was another case where we were, you know, I think there's kind of a few very pivotal moments in the business where we got very lucky and, you know, getting into Y Combinator was a very lucky thing going on Dragon's Den. And it really is genuinely a kind of like, they don't know anything about you. You walk into a room, you come out of the lift. The lift is fake, by the way. It's not a real lift, unfortunately, but there, there we go. But you go into the lift and you walk in and walk out and then you stand there and then they ask you questions. And gosh, we were in there filming like for three hours which was I think was the longest they'd ever done because they actually genuinely ask all the questions that you could possibly imagine that every good investor asks so obviously they edit it down to 12 minutes or 13 minutes whatever it is on the tv show but we were being filmed and getting asked questions for three hours and we got very lucky because we got offers from all five dragons and it's not shown in the program but we actually went to the wall three times because there were so many rounds of offers with all of it and he only showed us going to the wall once but i think that's because difficult to do in 12 minutes whatever it was but it was very very tense and we were in a kind of like fortunate position well first of all my co-founder will is just absolutely superb at this kind of investor stuff and dealing with like difficult questions and he actually had led the charge out in California because I'd had to come back early because I had a baby in March just as demo day was about to happen in California when you stand up and pitch in front of all the VCs in the world so I came back for my baby and Will did it all out there and was absolutely is and was absolutely superb at it out there so he was quite versed in all of it because he came through back from California having done all the pitches and then we went and did filming Dragon's Den in April so he'd kind of been really through the mixer and he brilliantly came up with a plan for how we were going to like if we got an offer how we were going to like negotiate it and what our starting position was and how we were going to drop down to like because it is a negotiation and you can't go in there and just be like this is my final offer you know and this is you know take it or leave it the dragons will kind of laugh at you you have to be able to negotiate so we started off at a certain valuation and we knew we could drop a few levels to this valuation but we also knew that we had just taken investment from very good investors out in California in Silicon Valley and therefore there was a valuation where we couldn't really like undercut them by taking a lower valuation on Dragon's Den, that wouldn't have been fair. So we kind of knew where our floor was and all of that kind of jazz in terms of our negotiation. That really, really helps. 
But, you know, it was an incredible experience. Tej Levani and Jenny Campbell, who invested us, have been brilliant, incredibly supportive. I mean, they've done well. They've tripled their money in 18 months. So I think everybody's happy. I suspect they probably would have liked us to carry on a bit longer and they would have been like, with all of that. But this is the tough decisions that are made. But I would highly recommend the Dragon's Den experience. We did get very lucky, but I think in terms of particularly anybody who's got a direct-to-consumer products that you can literally take. You know, the beauty of what we did was that as we were on screen, people were going on the website and signing up. And I think if you've got a product that can do that, like a direct-to-consumer product, then I think it definitely makes sense to do it, even if you don't actually get a deal or you even get the Living Daylights kicked out of you. You're still on primetime TV. It's fantastic. And it's also just an incredible experience. I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm a huge fan of everything they do and would highly recommend it. Sounds like just as long as you're prepared to be petrified, you'll be okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's all in the preparation if you know why you're doing it. I mean, we were lucky because we went in and we had a very high valuation. They were like, well, why is your valuation so high? I was like, well, we just built the big deal and made you know a million quid of profit over the last four years. So we're kind of like, we're not total jokers who are just saying that, you know, we should value the company at nine million quid straight out of the gate. You know, we were like, well, this is what we've done. We were in a kind of decent position like that. And But if you go in and you have a plan of what you kind of want to do and where you're willing to give a bit of ground and all that stuff I think it's doable but you can also just get unlucky and the dragons don't take to you or you know we were lucky that Tej Levani quite early on in the negotiation I think 20 minutes in made an offer and then that suddenly kind of pushed everybody if someone's quite early on in, in the negotiation says oh I'm out it kind of like the mood changes if you see what I mean so but there was a kind of like narrative and build up to it all that meant that people were kind of piling in which was great and we were very lucky henry real many thanks for being with us today i've really loved listening to your story and to your insights and really looking forward to speaking next time so thank you very much my pleasure that's all for this edition of julius bear's true connections podcast thank you for listening and please do keep in touch with us on twitter linkedin and at juliusbear.com mm-hmm.